The scripture reading today is taken from Matthew chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Christ City. Uh, my name is Brent. If I've not had the chance to meet you yet, I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And it is my deep joy to be preaching the word of God to you from this passage. It's such a powerful and beautiful passage. There's so much in it for us. And I'm praying and hoping that you'll, you'll see what's there for us uh, together. But before we jump into it, uh, it's so important that we realize that even in understanding the word of God, even in opening up the Bible, uh, we're dependent on God and his mercy to, to help our hearts to receive it, to be changed by it, to be moved, to become more like Jesus Christ himself. So that means I'm going to ask that you join with me in prayer as we begin. God, we come to you in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. We come to you by the power of the Holy Spirit whom you have given to us. And we ask as your beloved children, would you help us? Would you help us to see wonderful things in your word this morning? And not just to see them in our mind and in our intellect, but to see them and then to receive them into our hearts. They bear fruit. Lord, that we would be those that you would use to do tremendous things in this world for the glory of Jesus Christ. We ask that in his powerful name. Amen. So this morning we're in our second sermon in our series all about the church. We are the church. It's a four-part series. We're doing it through June before we move on to the Psalms. And as we begin this second sermon, I just have a question for you, and it's this. What is the mission that you are living for today? What's the target that you have for your life that you're seeking to, to hit with the direction, the trajectory of your life? I think in a room that's this big, there's probably a lot of different things that that could be. Uh, for some of us, it might be a satisfying career. For some, it might be a financial goal of some kind that, that if I attain this goal, that's going to be where I've accomplished my mission and, and that'll be it. For others, it might be to find a special someone, kind of a romantic goal. If I can find that partner, maybe a friendship even. If I could even find that, that friendship or that community, that would be it. Maybe for others, it's just to finish school, to graduate well. <laughs> maybe for others, it's to spend time with their kids, you know, to, to have a fulfilling family life. Maybe for others, it's just to squeeze whatever joy and whatever comfort you can out of the last days that you've been given, or maybe there's a lot of days left that you've been given, and to, to, to squeeze them for all they're worth. But, but as we talk about these things, and as I, you know, I'm projecting on you a little bit, but I think some of this is true, um, do you notice that there's something that all these goals have in common? The thing that all these goals have in common is me, and not me, Brant. You know, I'm not in your goals. Uh, I know that, uh, but me, you, <laughs> it's, it's living for, for a way to somehow fulfill my individualized, my personal 
desires, my personal feelings, to find a way to express those dreams and desires and to find fulfillment when I've reached those things. This is the culture that that we live in, and I think we all do this and have this as well. And the question, I think, is as we live to satisfy our various dreams, to, to fulfill ourselves in this way, has it led to our satisfaction? Are you satisfied? And maybe there's even a question here of, have you filled your life up so full and so busy that you actually don't even have time to pause and to consider the goal at which you're aiming and whether it is a sufficient goal for your life or not? Well, I argued last week that we needed to have a sort of church boot camp today. Last week was church boot camp day one. Today's church boot camp day two. And the reason we need this is because we tend to take our culture to church with us. We tend to take the culture of Vancouver and the Western secular world to church with us in such a way that we're not even aware of the ways that the culture, rather than the Bible, shape our lives as Christians in this church. I don't even realize it. We're like those two fish swimming along in the water. And the old fish comes up to them and says, how's the, how's the water this morning, boys? And they remark to one another, well, what the heck is water? <laughs> We're unaware of the way the culture is affecting us. And when it comes to the mission that we are given as a church, it's no different. So if you've ever wondered this morning whether there is a bigger mission to live for, one that's outside of you, one that might be worthy of giving your entire life to. I have really good news for you this morning because we're going to look at what Jesus has given the church, the mission that he's called us to, and the way that it is bigger and better and more fulfilling than anything that you could possibly be living for outside of him. We're going to see now three points looking at Jesus' mission that he's given to us as a church. We're going to look at Jesus' dominion, Jesus' disciples, and Jesus' presence. And our text this morning that we're going to be looking at is from the end of Matthew's gospel. It was just read by Amy a moment ago. But we're going to start our first point, Jesus' dominion, not by looking at the end of the gospel, but looking at the beginning of the gospel of Matthew and the mission that Jesus Christ was given by God. Go ahead and read Matthew chapter 1, verses 20 to 21 with me in our first point. In this passage... It's the Christmas narrative. We read this. The angel comes and he says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. You see, before we can talk about our mission as a church, we have to talk about Jesus' mission. And the mission that we see in the beginning of the gospel of Matthew when Jesus is born is that he has a glorious mission. It's this, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. The gospel of Matthew is really the story of the arrival of the Savior that God has sent for his people. The Savior who frees his people from sins. And not, not sins in the abstract. I think that we think about sin sometimes as this abstract, intellectualized, philosophical concept. Right? But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about sins in the concrete. 
sins that, that, that work their way out in this world by bringing destruction, by, by ruining the good creation that God has made for us to enjoy, that he wants us to, to enjoy an enriched life of flourishing relationship with him. Sins like hatred and selfishness and injustice. These sorts of sins, what do they do? They destroy families. They destroy communities and towns and cities. They destroy whole nations as they get their root in the human heart. Sins, like worshiping things that are false. Sins like not living in relationship with God in all the vibrancy of the life that he has called us to. A life of, of love in relationship with him. But actually turning away from him and the, the sin of living in the sepia tone Black and white existence away from relationship with God. And Jesus came to save us from all of that. In the, in the narrative of, of Matthew's gospel, we, we see this. We see real concrete sins that we can all relate to today in 2022 in Vancouver at work around in the world in which Jesus lived. And they're contrasted with the perfection of who Jesus is as he lives his life. I'll give you a couple examples. In the beginning of the gospel, the King of Kings, God Most High became human. It's glorious. He was born in a manger in humility and love to save his people. It's just this unbelievable picture we're given. And that's contrasted with King Herod. King Herod, who in his selfish insecurity, hears something about this king who was born and then kills all of the children, two years old and under, the males in the region where Jesus was said to have been born to protect his rule and his reign. We see the contrast of the perfections of Jesus, who is the Prince of Peace, as the narratives of the gospel take place in a time that's rife with injustice and poverty and oppression under the rule and the, the um, horrible tyranny of, of Rome. And we see this Jesus, this glorious Savior, who came to, to live out this mission of God to, to, to save sinners, to have mercy on those that were the outcasts and the destitute, to welcome those that were rejected by their societies to him, to welcome them into relationship with God. And we see the religious elite of Jesus' day hating and despising Jesus for his mercy and his compassion. In one instance recorded in the Gospel of Matthew and on the Gospel of, of Mark, uh, the man with the withered hand is healed by Jesus, and it's that moment and this mercy and compassion that the religious rulers decide we're going to destroy him. As they reject him. See, Jesus came to save people from sin and the horrors that it produced in real time and in real life. But in his time, he wasn't the only one who wanted to save Israel. There were others. Israel at the time of Jesus was uh, this period of time that was ripe for populist uprisings, for revolutions. Actually, one of Jesus' own disciples was Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot was one of the freedom fighters for Israel before Jesus called him. He was, it's, I don't think it's wrong to say this, he was a terrorist against Rome. That's, that's who Simon was, who Jesus called to be his disciple. And it's in this context that we see this, this utterly different mission that Jesus had to save us from sin because he didn't teach insurrection. He taught something radically different. He taught humility, selfless love, a, a rich, 
a mercy for the outcast and the sinner and the stranger and the foreigner, and especially for one's own enemies, because that's how God has been towards us, merciful and so gracious and forgiving to us. At the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the first major section of teaching in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus opens with this counter-cultural message of salvation that seems so counterintuitive. He says this, he opened his mouth and he taught them saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You want to live rightly before God. It says, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, because they do what is right in following God. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice. Be glad. For your reward in heaven is great. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This unbelievable countercultural teaching. His mission was to teach God's people to embrace mercy and forgiveness and love, to have courage even in dire circumstances, to obey God, even in the face of opposition, trusting that there's a good and loving God who cares for us, that we can courageously follow him and it's going to be enough. He'll take care of us. And Jesus didn't just teach this in abstract concepts. He actually lived it and exemplified it perfectly in his own life. And because he lived it perfectly, he was betrayed by his enemies. And yet there is something deeper going on because even this betrayal by his enemies was according to a beautiful and up to that point hidden plan of God. A plan of God for salvation, to forgive our sin and to reconcile human beings to himself. And the good news of the gospel, of course, is that Jesus' death wasn't the end of the story. We don't just stop there. This wonderful Jesus who lived a sacrificial life and died. There's much more. God raised Jesus from death to reign forever with absolute dominion and authority and to fill us, his church, with his Holy Spirit so that we would begin to be changed freed from our own sin, to live like Jesus in this world. And then we come to our text then in Matthew 28, 18, after Jesus' resurrection. And there Jesus stands as the conquering king over all God's enemies, as the savior who came to rescue us from our sin. And he declares all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's now the ruler of, of all, the king of kings with absolute power and dominion. I think what's surprising to us that we don't realize unless we're told and we look a little bit deeper into this gospel is that that rule and that dominion, it's not just as God having dominion over everything. Because God had that before Jesus. 
right? In the Old Testament, the Bible, we see all over the place that God already had absolute rule and authority, right? You read in the Psalms, things like this, uh, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. He is already the ruler. No, this is so surprising. We need to see this, that Jesus is raised with all of this authority as a human being. It's a firstborn of a new kind of humanity. Restored to the good rule and dominion that God actually had intended for the human beings that he made in his image. You see, Christ City, God made humanity for a glorious purpose. I want to expand your vision for your life and for who you are right now. He made you for a glorious purpose. He made you to rule and to reign over this earth. He made you to rule and reign over this earth as the image bearers of God, as those who are beloved children of God, who everywhere that you go, you live as a child that loves your father, that loves to obey him. So where you go and exercise dominion in your life, it's good. Just like Jesus' rule is good. But of course that didn't happen. <laughs> when you look back at the history of humankind, we see that our first parents they failed. They sinned. They turned against God. And, and ever since then, wherever we've gone, we've brought heartache and sorrow, not more flourishing life. You know, Adam and Eve turn away from God in the, in the narrative, and then their son kills their other son. And then it spirals out of control. And, and then the grandson boasts how much more wicked and, and murderous he is than even his dad. And then the story just goes downhill from there. Until Jesus. Until Jesus became the firstborn of a new humanity. Until Jesus was exalted to the dominion that we'd lost over this world. Until Jesus began a restoration for humankind. Jesus, Christ said, he saves us from our sin. And it's sometimes true. I think oftentimes true in the history of the world that we tried to save ourselves from our sin and failed miserably, <laughs> right? All, all over the place, you know, it's not like oppression and injustice are things that, that, that we like, right? And so we try to fix the problem. For example, the beginning of the 19th century, France tried to fix, fix the problem. But how did they do it, right? The, the oppression and injustice of the ruling elite was murderously opposed with the guillotine, Bloodshed was fought with bloodshed. And violent revolution led to more violence and finally led to the tyranny under Napoleon Bonaparte. And this miserable failure of humanity trying to save itself in the way that we knew how. I share this because I want you to see how different Jesus' dominion and salvation are. See, his rise to absolute exaltation and authority overall, it wasn't through a bloody revolution. It was through his bloody cross. It wasn't through a bloody revolution, but through his bloody cross where he gave himself and poured his life out for his enemies. To die for those who rejected him so that we might be saved. And this 
ministry of reconciliation, this death on the cross, it reconciles sinners with God's with God himself so that now we can live as those that are filled with the Holy Spirit so that our relationship with God is this deeply miraculous, unified thing with God. His spirit dwells in us, Christ City. The spirit of the life of God most high is filling you if you are trusting in Jesus Christ so that you can be restored to this perfect rule and reign that was intended for humanity under Jesus. It's glorious. Christy, I want you to see this morning that Jesus is king over all in ways that you probably haven't thought about before. It's big. His authority is absolute. He says all authority. There isn't any that's left over. It's all of it. In heaven and on earth, it's been given to Jesus. You know what that means? It means something gloriously encouraging for you and I. It means that Jesus has never had a day as, a, as king over all, as firstborn of a new humanity, where he went to bed at night worried about all the things that he'd failed to accomplish that day. He hasn't had one of those days. Every single day, things go according to Jesus' purposes and his plans. What exists that could oppose Jesus? Nothing. Nothing can oppose his kind, loving, and good purposes to save his people and to save this world from sin. You know, I saw this week uh, a girl in a t-shirt, a t-shirt that I thought had expired in 1995. Um, You may have, if you're my age or older, seen a number of t-shirts and clothing that you thought expired in 1995 as well recently. This was a no fear t-shirt. And I seriously, I remember distinctly having an 11-year-old Brent with a, a No Fear t-shirt. And it was my favorite t-shirt, for sure. And it's good that it was now burnt. Uh, but I saw one. And I thought, what a ridiculous t-shirt. Because <laughs> in this world, there's every reason to be afraid. But not for those who have Jesus as the head. Not for those who, who Jesus is the head of us as, as his church. All authority in heaven and on earth are his. We have no reason to fear. And what's even more remarkable than than all of this in our first point, I think, is, is our second point. This Jesus with all authority is presently expanding his rule, and get this, through you. Look at our second point, Jesus' disciples in verses 28, 18 to 20. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. You see, the logic of of this text and what Jesus is saying to his disciples is this. Because Jesus now reigns with all authority in heaven and earth because he is now the head of a new humanity, because he is the one who can fill his church with his spirit. Therefore, he can send out his church to expand his rule. Therefore, go and make disciples. Paul actually talks about this a lot as well in his writing in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul. And in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 to 23, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, 
He describes the sort of power that's at work in us this morning as a church because Jesus is our king and has filled us with his spirit. And he describes it in this remarkable way. I'll show it to you. He talks about the immeasurable greatness of Jesus' power toward us who believe. Immeasurable. You can't measure it. You can't contain it. Can't put it in a bucket. No matter how big the bucket is, it's immeasurable. And it's according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things (coughs) under Jesus' feet and gave him his head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. I want you to see the logic in this text. Keep looking at it. Jesus has been resurrected, just like he said, far above everything. And he's been given as head over all things to the church, the body of Jesus, that's us, for a reason in order to push back the evil and sorrow and suffering of sin that is in this world. How? It's that last line. By filling this world through his church with the very fullness of God. That's breathtaking. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of Jesus who is filling all in all. See, God's audacious project to reverse the brokenness of sin and death in this world is to fill this world with his presence by filling it with his church. Isn't that amazing? I think that it's true to say that we all love rags to riches stories, right? Who doesn't like a good rags to riches story? Whether it's the Count of Monte Cristo, whether it's David Copperfield, if you like Dickens, Whether it's modern stories of real people like Oprah Winfrey or maybe Ryan Reynolds in her own hometown of Kitsilano in Vancouver who grew up in a pretty broken home here uh, in Kits. There's something redemptive and hopeful, I think, about these least likely characters that are exalted and given dignity and, and honor and this glory that they now have. But Christ City, you need to realize that the greatest rags to riches story that exists is ours. It's the church. Because God has given us as a church a dignity and an honor that is unparalleled. We are his instruments to glorify Jesus as we participate in the redemption of the world. That's amazing. Now, how do we do that? Well, look again at Jesus' words in Matthew 28, 19 to 20. We do it by obeying his command. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. Note a couple of things here. First, the purpose we've been given to live for is this. This is the mission. To go make disciples for Jesus. That's the purpose we've been given as a church. That's the mission that we have in the whole of our lives, Christ City, is to go and to make disciples. Second, notice that making disciples is a lot more than just mentioning Jesus from time to time with the people around us. It's pretty big. It includes baptism, 
which is the second thing that we see here. And baptism, as we know, as we've talked about baptism lately, it's about union with God through Jesus Christ. Union with God isn't this casual acquaintance with God. It's this beautiful union whereby we are forgiven of our sins, united to Jesus and his death and in his resurrection, reconciled to God, filled with his Holy Spirit and empowered to go out now and live a life in imitation of Jesus. And third, this mission is holistic. It requires teaching not a little bit about Jesus, but all that he has commanded us. You know, in his commentary in the book of Matthew, Dr. Dale Allison, he writes this about that word all. His all refers not to one command or to the Sermon on the Mount, but to all of Jesus' teaching. Not just imperatives, but also proverbs, blessings, parables, and prophecies. But more than verbal revelation is involved, for such revelation cannot be separated from Jesus' life, which is itself a command. This is a holistic thing, Christ City. We must teach about Jesus as we disciple others, not just about what he has done for us, so that's included, but also by living lives that have been shaped by Jesus as those who are in an active apprenticeship to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So there's different kinds of teaching that can happen in this world. I'll explain. You can be taught theoretical knowledge from a lectern, right? But that's not the whole of teaching. That's possible, but you're not going to become an excellent nurse or practitioner or whatever you might be if all you get is theory from the lectern. No, to, to be shaped, to be discipled, you have to practice. When you're in an apprenticeship, you learn the theory and then you go and you live that practice that day. Then you come back and learn some more theory. Then you practice it the next day. And then you have the person who's apprenticing you living with you and shaping you to not that way, but this way here, let me help you. Moving you and molding you towards the fit and the person who has now been trained up as a disciple of whatever that trade might be. In the same way for us with Jesus, we're to live like Jesus' disciples in messy apprenticeship relationships with others. It's how we disciple. It's how we teach what God has called us to teach here. And I think that is a corrective for us because some of us are probably in the similar place when we think about this command. Some of us have a bit of a history with, with this text, the Great Commission, because we think about it in a particular way. When I was young, for example, I thought that this text would only apply to pastors and missionaries because I knew that they did a lot of teaching. I knew that they're the ones, okay, so they're called and we can support them in various ways. I'm not saying that any of that is bad. That's all very, very good and we should do that. We should support the missionaries. We have to go after all. We have to bring all nations to this place where they understand the goodness and the glory of Jesus and obey him. But I didn't realize something else that's so important here. I didn't realize that the often overlooked lives of regular Christians living faithful, sacrificial lives of love for Jesus and one another, that that's the greatest tool that Jesus uses to build his kingdom. The regular way that he builds his kingdom is through you. Living lives that are faithful to Jesus day in and day out. Lives that are looking for an angle to share with him about others. Looking for an angle to get into the life of somebody else, to love him as he's loved you and to minister to them in that way. So you are taking part in the discipleship 
Of all nations, when you faithfully live for Jesus in your homes as a mother or as a father teaching your kids, it's so important that you know that. You are fulfilling the great commission. You are faithfully living as disciple makers for Jesus when you repent of sin in your marriages. When you ask for forgiveness of your friends, when you have other people in your lives who don't yet know Jesus, who are close enough to you in messy relationships that they see you striving to follow Jesus, living a messy life of repentance and dependence on him for his mercy and for his grace. You are living as disciple makers for Jesus when you invite your neighbors into your home when you start to think strategically about how to build community and a community-less Vancouver, especially when you do that for the people that are the least like you, especially when you do it for the people who are the furthest away from you, those who ideologically are opposed to you, those who naturally speaking are probably your enemies. When you love them, you're loving them and showing them the way of Jesus who loved you when you were his enemy. You do this when you volunteer at the Crisis Pregnancy Center. When you serve at Jacob's Well. When you serve at youth group and when you live faithfully for Jesus in your workplace. When you sacrifice what you have to support the teaching of the word of God here at home in Vancouver and overseas. You are participating in the work of making disciples. Christ, this is a shared job. I want you to be free from the burden of thinking that this is all on you. It's on us. And each of us has a part to play in it. And it starts with each of us loving the people around us like Jesus has loved us. And then as we have opportunity by courageously sharing with them how he has had mercy on me and changed my life forever by his grace. You know, this is a slow work. It's an imperfect work. We're keyed in, I think, as human beings to look for the the, the big, impressive, flashy way that this work is done. But it doesn't happen that way. It happens through regular faithful lives of sacrificial love for others. There's this great illustration of this in the book, The Brothers Karamazov, and there's this doctor who comes and talks to Father Zosima, uh, this monk, uh, at one point in the story. And he talks to the, to the monk and he's like, hey, look, I can imagine and, and dream about even dying on the cross to sins of humanity in a moment of passion. But then I meet people. And I I can't stand like two minutes of living in the same room with them. And he's getting at something deep and true that apart from the Holy Spirit of God changing our lives, it is hard to sacrifice in the regular, normal way that God uses to push back the darkness of this world. We're dependent on his spirit. Why don't you look back at verses 19 to 20 one more time. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded to you. I think when we look at these verses and we're honest, we recognize that today these verses are offensive. You know why they're offensive? They're offensive because we live in an age where we've embraced a cultural relativism. 
And that relativism says this. It says that, that what right have you, Jesus, and certainly you, followers of Jesus, to think that the culture that you're trying to inculcate is any better than the culture that, that is, sorry, Gretchen, the, the culture that you're trying to impress upon others uh, is any better than, than the, the culture that they have themselves viewed from within their own society. Maybe you think it's wrong, but they don't. But is that true? What if those cultures practice slavery? What if apart from Jesus, they practice human sacrifice or live in ways that, that break them from relationship with God? What if those cultures exterminate Jews in gas chambers? Are those things okay if the culture accepts them? If their own culture accepts them? Of course not, because there is right and wrong, and we know it because we've been made in God's image and we have consciences. And we know as a revelation from God's word that the standard of right and wrong is the perfect life of Jesus rules with all authority and his word, the Bible, and that he sent his disciples forward on a mission. So they go forward into every culture and they call every culture to repent. Every culture must fall on its knees in repentance before Jesus Christ, who is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Whether it's barbarian Europeans who are oppressing and killing one another in the hordes that existed at the time of Jesus. Or it's Hindu India and the oppressive caste system that destroys life. Or it's the indigenous peoples of Mexico and Latin America who would sacrifice, some estimates say, up to 80,000 human beings a year to their gods, ripping out their still beating hearts of children and men and women. See, Jesus challenges every culture. Animistic Africa, Papua religion and human sacrifice in Indonesia prior to the Chinese missionaries that brought the gospel there. Jesus is Lord of all. And humanity will not flourish outside of being redeemed into his loving self-sacrificial rule and brought into the dominion that we were supposed to have under his rule and reign. In Christ City, unbelievably, you are the instrument that God wants to use to bring this blessing to others. There is no other instrument outside of his church. He only uses means. He only uses his people. So how are you living your life? What is it that you've aimed your life at? What have you aimed your retirement at? What's your five-year plan? What's the rationale for you choosing the career that you have, the school that you have, the romantic relationship that you are in? Can your current goal for your life compare with the mission of Jesus to bring life and flourishing to a humanity mired in sin and suffering? How might you submit all that you are and all that you have, and the vocation where you're at, and the place that you're in, and prayerfully and strategically use those things for God's glory as you obey Jesus in this mission. You know, this world, it, it wants you to find meaning and purpose by fulfilling your heart's dreams. Just follow your heart. 
Once you define meaning and purpose by, by chasing down your dreams, but when you live for yourself, this is what's going to happen. One day you'll wake up and you'll find that you've failed. Or you'll wake up and you'll find that you've succeeded, but that all the money and the sex and the comfort and the success that they've failed to satisfy you. And then in that day, you will be utterly alone. But as we go forward in this unbelievable mission as the church, we don't go alone. Jesus ends the gospel of Matthew with the most comforting words on earth. Look at our third point and Jesus' presence in 1820. Behold, I am with you. Christ City, he's with you. Whatever you're going through right now, he is with you. I am with you to the end of the age. Won't you just turn to him in prayer and in trust? Take some time this week to, to know that he is with you. And then retreat with him like, like Jesus would retreat with the Father in his earthly life. Come to him in prayer, seeking his presence, depending utterly on the Holy Spirit of God who he's given you and who is with you. He's with you. And this Jesus who's with us, he told us in Matthew 16, 18, something unbelievable. He said, I will build my church. I will build my church. I think there's times today when we can feel defensive as Christians and think that Jesus isn't building his church. It's not true. I was really listening to a podcast this week and they, they said something profound. They said, either we are living in a time when God is leading his church to repentance and preparation for the gospel mission, or we're living at a time of great gospel expansion. But we're only living in either one or the other of those times. Because Jesus is the kind of God who's with us and says, I will build my church. And he says, the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You know, I think we, we look at this passage and we think about it so wrongly half the time because we think the gates of hell is, is this weapon that the armies of hell carry, right? They're, they're running forward with their armies and they got a gate on their shoulders and they're, they're charging the fortress of the church and they're going to lob that gate over the walls and crush us on the inside. But that's not what this means because Jesus is saying, you are the army, you are the army. Hell is the fortress. My spirit is with you and I will build my church so that there is no chain that you will not break. No fortress of Satan. No stronghold of sin and death and destruction in this world that can stand against the armies of my church. I'm with you and I'm committed to this mission. It's not the kind of Jesus who just has the church as his weekend project. He's passionate about the glory of his bride. And he will give us the victory. Grace City, we need this this morning. We need it because if we're honest, we're afraid. I'm afraid. I, I lack courage and I know you do too. 
And I know that so often at the moments in our life when we lack courage, the one thing that can get us over that hump to take the step of faith is presence. For me, I can remember distinctly the sunny day when I was three years old and my dad took me to a basketball court and, and then took off the training wheels of my bike. It was his presence that gave me the courage to do it. I remember moving in 2012, you get the date wrong, to Louisville, Kentucky with the presence of my wife. Not sure that I would have been bold enough to follow God on the mission he'd called me to alone. I can think back to innumerable times in the last four years of being a pastor at Christ City Church where I would not have been able to continue on without the support of the pastors and the elders of Christ City Church. The presence of, of you, Jonathan, and you, Doug, and, and then you brothers and sisters in Christ being with me, sustaining me in my calling. In the Bible, there's so many stories about presence giving courage. And one of the famous ones is Joshua 1 verse 6, where Joshua is now leading the people of Israel into the promised land. And there's this unbelievable promise. And God says, have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And you know, that is fulfilled only and unbelievably in the presence of Jesus Christ filling his church. How could we otherwise, a frail, not very smart, not very strong, not very disciplined group of people be part of so great a mission? Only because of the infinite power of the Spirit at work within us. That's the only way. It's Jesus' presence filling his people that has led to untold countless millions giving their lives in sacrificial love. To see the glory of Jesus expanded in this world. To see sin and death and oppression pushed back from every corner of the globe where it's gone forward. All because Jesus says, I'm with you always to the end of the age. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You know, Paul says in Ephesians 3, verse 20 to 21, these words, not to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, his church. We often take these verses to be about individuals. It's not, it's about us as a church. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Christ City, can I encourage you? Go forward this week with courage. Be strong and very courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you. Can we pray together? Lord, we are so grateful for the power and the presence of your Holy Spirit. We're so grateful that you, Jesus, are the sort of God who rules over all things, who's bringing life. We ask that in the power of, of your name now, you would continue filling us and using us for your glory in Vancouver. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.